Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast. Episode SOS number 30. I think it might be 31, right? Your your thumbnail said 30. I forgot to change it. <laughs> okay. Let's 31. Ch- let's change that real quick. Change that to 31. Um, so you know it's 31. I know it's 31. The thumbnail just doesn't say that it's 31. How, how does that sound? That sounds fine. Okay. Yeah, number 31. Boy, we got 30 in the books. So we're going to do a 30 for 31 here. Sounds good to That's me. That's good. Yeah. So today we had a conversation yesterday when I was walking. After we did a whole hour-long podcast, we had another conversation. Because we just can't get <laughs> enough of chit-chatting, right? Yes. And I was... And this morning... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Say it. Well, go, go, you say what you're going to say, then I'll follow up. All right, I was explaining to you that when I was in school, I took a philosophy class, and I learned about ethos, pathos, and logos. Um, and I explained it to you all wrong, but I said ethos <laughs> was like first principles. Ethos is something you believe without having to be shown evidence. Pathos is emotion, and logos is logic. And... And I learned about these three things, and and Aristotle said those are the three ways that you make an argument. Um, you either, you know, you have your first principles that they're built on, and then you use emotion and logic in addition to those first principles. Now, going back and looking at the Wikipedia page, we see I was sort of right, uh, not totally right, but uh, I was I was close, right? Oh, yeah, you're very close. But uh, let me ask, uh, when did Aristotle die? Uh, should I Google it? No, I'll, I'll Google it here. Okay. Uh, well, I thought I would. Yeah, uh, rhetoric. Rhetoric it was written in 350 B.C. Wow. 350 B.C., okay? Mm-hmm. So this stuff is not new. This has been around for centuries. Some things don't change. People don't change. So in 350 BC, Aristotle recognized what we're getting ready to talk about. And on BBC News this morning, I got I got this text here and it said, why are QAnon believers obsessed with 4 March? And they go through the explanation. And that's what we're getting ready to talk about, right? Yeah. Uh, do you think there's a lot of pathos in that? <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, uh, we can talk about it. I think there is pathos, uh, but I think there's ethos in there, and there's very little logos, but there is logos. Yeah, all three are in. All three are in there. Uh, but then it's not it's not defining each one of them is important. Well, it is important. You can't stop with just defining the three. Because uh, it's per, it's it's modes of persuasion. You have to go deeper and say how do those three, how are those three mixed, and how those three they coordinate with one another, mm-hmm. and how are they used in, in an argument, uh, and so and also when you have an argument or we have a persuasion, there's two parties. There's at least two parties, the one that's giving the message and one that's receiving the message. So it's not just defining the three things like. In philosophy or psychology or whatever it is, it's looking at, oh, what's happening today is looking at the environment. 
And if you're looking at the sender and the receiver of that information, you're also looking at the context we're in, you're looking at the environment we're in, and so there's so much, so much to really look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what what are the issues? Is it social? Is it environmental? Or is it political? Uh, or is it emotional? Or whatever you know. The other thing too is that um, what are the consequences? You know, does it really matter? Well, yeah, it does matter. That's interesting. Anyway, there's a lot to it. I think it's interesting. You said, is it social? Is it environmental? Or is it political? Because when I took to YouTube to try to find examples of this, the predominant application of these modes of persuasion was as examples in advertising. And that was one that sort of slipped by because you're thinking, let's think about serious issues, social issues, environmental issues, political issues. Now, if you go and look into ethos, pathos, logos, these modes of persuasion that Aristotle outlined 2,300 years ago, what are people using them for? And according to our search engine algorithms, it's to sell you razor blades and tube socks and, uh, you know, jockey shorts. It's not, it's not these big issues that people use this stuff for. And the thing is, you are being persuaded every day. And you might not be being persuaded to storm the Capitol. You might be per- being persuaded to buy a Schick razor instead of a Gillette razor. But you're still being persuaded. Or sugar candy. Yeah. Well, the other thing, David, that, that I think of is, I guess, taking it to be serious, if this is what you're bombarded with, with advertising, ever since you're a little kid, and you've always thought that way, to me, that's a school of thought, where you will always think about appealing to emotion or appealing to authority, or that's how you're going to think. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the root cause uh, that's one or that's an influence in the root cause of like this QAnon movement. Yeah, they don't need they don't need facts. Their facts are in their head. And that's real to them because they were told that. And maybe they were told that ever since they were a young child growing up looking at all the the uh, cartoon commercials on TV. It's just I'm just saying mm-hmm. I'm not this is not my area, but hey. Uh, the sons of Sequoia are throwing it out there and just saying, what if? And uh, the fascinating thing is, like you said, logos. There's not a lot of logos in QAnon, but there is logos because we're going to go through the Wikipedia article first. Then I think talking about QAnon is an obvious example of how these people have been persuaded to believe something that's absurd and how. And then I just want to play, before we end today, I want to play a little... uh, clip from Vice News that I saw yesterday. I thought it was fascinating. It was about fast food in Kuwait and how everyone there is getting obese and Vice News is trying to blame it on fast food. And they make a compelling argument. They make a persuasive argument. And I think that we can use our newly found framework of the modes of persuasion to sort of analyze the argument they're trying to make. So does that sound like a good structure for this next uh, hour or so? Oh, yeah. That sounds good. So let's get into the definitions. We're just going to use Wikipedia. I mean, we could have pulled up Aristotle's writings, but this is probably more clean. 
So ethos is an appeal to authority or credibility of the presenter. It is how well the presenter convinces the audience that the presenter is qualified to speak on the subject. This can be done by being a notable figure in the field in question, such as a college professor or an executive of a company whose business is related to the presenter's topic, demonstrating mastery of the terminology of the field, or being introduced by or producing bona fides from established authorities. So let's talk about some examples of that. Well, the obvious is the president of the United States. Yes, but also... And, and, and they've been saying words matter. Words matter from your office. But also a college professor. So someone can walk in. I mean, I could teach community college. I have a, a master's degree. I could walk in and they might call me professor, um, whereas you have a PhD. And it's like your bona fides are more. But to an undergrad, to an 18-year-old kid that just graduated high school, if I walked in in a shirt and tie with a briefcase and I started teaching material, they wouldn't really see much of a distinction aside from maybe age <laughs> between you and I, right? Despite the fact that you do have more credibility. Now, if you were to publish and send in something to a journal, they say, this guy only has a master's degree. Your bona fides may actually carry you a little further where they would... I think examine your words a little closer because you do have more credentials than I do. Does that make sense in terms of like appeal to ethos? Uh, for people who understand the differences, mm -hmm. but students don't. No, but like I said, a peer-reviewed peer journal may. And if I submitted the same article as you, would you be more likely oh. to get your article published because you have a PhD at the end of your title? Yes. I, I've, I feel like... Uh, people in the know will say, oh, this is coming from a PhD, not just uh, an MBA. So let's take a, a more serious look at it. They're more serious about their, the, their words are bound to be more serious since they have more credentials. So credentials mean something in, in smaller and smaller societies. Like you said, the president of the United States is an obvious example. That person, you could be top of the food chain in terms of, you know, you could be Jeff Bezos or someone, or you could have more academic accolades than anyone, or you could be in poverty or have never graduated high school. So, you know, you could be the richest man, the poorest man, the most educated, the least educated. Almost all of them under, understand that the president is the head of the U.S. government and the United States is a powerful country. So th that lends you credibility by being the president. Now, there are some arcane... Uh, qualifications that will lend you credibility in small circles. Like, do you know what a CCNA is? No. Let's look it up. A CCNA is a Cisco Certified Network oh. uh, Associate Administrator, I believe. Yeah, I've heard of that. that that's a, yeah, that's a certification that Cisco gives, and it's pretty, it's pretty high. Oh yeah, yeah. I, it has been it has been equated with a PhD in that area. Um, sort of, yeah. It's kind of like a PhD in the internet, in the hardware of the internet. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. That's how. That's what I've heard. So, like networking switches, routers, stations, server farms. If your company is going to do that, the CCNA is the qualification. That allows you, like you could be an electrical engineer or a computer science major, 
It's sort of like a professional degree, like a law degree for a systems administrator. Does that make sense? Like if you're going to administer a company's IT infrastructure, you could be an electrical engineer or a computer science major, but the professional degree would be the CCNA. Well, you're talking about publications. If you're doing research in a certain area, like a technical area, uh, and you have done this research and you write this paper, well, that paper, you know exactly what goes in there. You wrote it. Mm -hmm. And so you're the CCNA of that paper. <laughs> yeah. I guess what I'm saying is the the plugging you know, network uh, cables into network switches and designing a server farm to minimize electrical output, to maximize throughput, to handle any data spikes that may occur, occur for your corporation internally and externally, a CCNA is more equipped to handle that than a PhD in electrical engineering because, because they've they studied know, that they know narrow. That. Yeah. They probably don't know everything electrical engineer, PhD in EE is. Yes. Uh, they don't know all the other stuff, but they know that really well. But yeah. in the broader society, uh, you tell someone, oh, uh, well, what's your education? Oh, I have a PhD in electrical engineering. Like, oh, that's exciting. But if you told the average person, even an educated person, oh, I have a, a master's degree in computer science and a CCNA, the CCNA is like, oh, you're a, a certified nurse's assistant? Like, you, work at, you know, you work at a nursing home? Like, uh, or you work in a hospital? That's, it's not as prestigious as a PhD, right? So if a CCNA is like, oh, your home network is all messed up. You need to move your router here. And it's like, well, you, well, I listen to this guy. He's got a PhD in electrical engineering. And it's like, no, the CCNA probably knows better than the electrical right. engineer does. That's so, right. it, so uh, I guess the appeal to authority your authority only extends, like you said, as far as the people understand what authority you have. Does that make sense? Like you're, you got to know your audience. So if your audience mm -hmm. doesn't know that you have the authority, then you can't make a uh, persuasive argument based on ethos. Yeah, well, you can turn that around, too. If the people don't really understand the extent of your authority and you have authority, uh, then you can sell that authority in areas that you are not proficient in. I think that happens that's, a lot. That's the danger it happens a lot. It happens a lot. I think I think uh, years ago, like uh, the old uh, snake oil salesman of the 1800s ago, I'm so and so and Wilbur, blah, 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 Esquire. Oh, well, then you must know what you're talking about. Yep, I do, you know. And there's some Joe Blow that put Esquire at the end of his name. Yeah. You know. And why? Because it works. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a, it's a very good point. And that's why people do it, because it works. And that's why uh, you have to question. I tell my students, question everything. You know, ask questions. You know, is this right? Is that right? And, and I have assignments where I have uh, scenarios where I'll have my uh, my uh, device is called Roger, where Roger says a bunch of things. I don't know if you remember that, but Roger says a bunch of things, and he'll say five things. Two are right and three are wrong. You know, so you have to find out which one, and they all sound right. But when you look at it in detail, wait a minute, that's not exactly right. No, that's wrong. It sounds right, but it's not right. Yeah. And so a lot of people will do that.
Uh, yeah. Um, should we move on to pathos? Uh, well, ethos, why isn't that what you said we've moved away from first principles or first knowledge, but wouldn't that also, uh, the first knowledge would reside within the authority? Yes. Now, I without think, proof, without proof. Yes. I think that when I said first principles, I was just thinking in my head about ethics, you know, oh, oh, and yeah. I mischaracterized the, the orthodox interpretation of ethos. Ethos as a mode of persuasion is more of an appeal to the authority of the speaker. I see. Okay. Yeah. But then it also is true if you're appealing to the authority, that does not necessarily mean there's logic. That's true. <laughs> or, there's, or there's facts uh, or that they're right or wrong. Mm -hmm. It's just their authority. They can say anything they want if it's purely ethos. And I think uh, that's exactly what we're seeing in QAnon. Uh, they don't need facts. Uh, they don't need logic. I believe in this, you know, and we're just getting started. We're going to turn the world around, you know, this kind of thing. And well, a lot of the revolutionaries, a lot of the people who who have coups and tear down uh, uh, countries will seek out people who believe in that and follow that. And when they find them, they push them in order to overturn governments, and they're not going to be there. They'll wait till the government gets overturned. Then they'll rush in, and they'll get rid of those people because someone else will do the same thing to them. Yes. Uh, so do you know the authority of QAnon? It's not a Trump thing. Well, I mean, it is a Trump thing, but... Do you know where Q comes no. from? Q clearance. Q clearance. So you know That's a little right. something about Q clearance, right? Yep. If you have Q clearance, they don't tell you everything, right? <laughs> no, they don't. So this guy is you, saying... You have, you, you have clearance to know anything, but that doesn't mean you know everything. Mm -hmm. Q clearance just says you're authorized to know uh, sensitive and classified information. It doesn't mean you know it, because uh, you only know it if you have a need to know. Uh, and if you have a need to know, then you know just what you need to know. And so everyone doesn't know everything. Everyone doesn't know anything. So the interesting yeah, thing, I, the thing I, is... I had, Q, I had Q clearance back in the 70s and, and 80s. So you know, you've actually had Q clearance. Now that right. is QAnon. Their leader is a guy named Q who's anonymous. And his only appeal to authority is that he has Q clearance. So as someone that has had Q clearance at some point in your life, you can take a look at the QAnon conspiracy theory and tell people almost unequivocally, right? That's not how it works. That's not how it works. <laughs> and the reason you're anonymous is then you can say anything you want. Yeah. So, but you're... You can, you can, you're, you can make things up. You can make up conspiracies. You can make things up and then and you can say whatever you want. And that, that's perfectly fine. But I'm saying that, that Q's level of authority is just his his credibility is just his claim without any evidence that he has Q clearance. Now, you can say your credibility is exactly the same, if not greater than Q's, because you actually did have Q level clearance in the 70s. And you can tell people, as someone with the same level of credibility, that's not how it works, right? <laughs> uh, not when I was there. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Yep. Maybe it's Not changed. Where I was. Oh, I don't think it's changed. No. The, uh, the thing about security, uh, the, well, security is, is, a, is a complex issue. It's a very important issue. And you have checks and balances all the way through, and you have to have that. So these are smart people, very smart people uh, uh, handling uh, security. And so they're not, I mean, think about it. It's, oh, yeah, let's let everybody know everything. Well, that is a very high risk. And the whole point of security is low risk or, or mitigating risk. And you don't mitigate risk by letting everybody know everything because that increases the chances of something inadvertently, not on purpose, accidentally being leaked. The best way of not getting a leak is not knowing it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you only know what you need to know. And if that's all you need to know, then you know how sensitive it is and you know how important it is. And you're going to tell anybody. I mean, you're going to keep it, keep it uh, classified because you know the power of it. Well, I think a great example of this was a year ago today, you know, Colorado had one or two cases of coronavirus. And Fauci, I think this was pre-mask advice. And he said later on, and Trump also said this, to his credit, you could say in the early days, maybe he was trying to downplay it to galvanize resources for healthcare professionals. So Fauci was saying, yes, I knew that masks would be helpful at this time, but we had an insufficient supply for healthcare workers in America. So I didn't say that everyone should wear a mask until April because I wanted to make sure that the people on the front lines who would be fighting this disease would have sufficient supply. So we galvanized our supply chain, we got the masks in, and then we said everyone should wear a mask after that. And people like to point to that and say he was wrong, but maybe he knew. But if he came out in late February, early March and said everyone needs to wear a mask, there would be a run on masks and hospitals couldn't get them. And that would be disastrous. It would spread even more. Yeah. So you could make an argument that maybe everyone shouldn't know everything. And maybe the government does dole out information to you in a manner in which it'll maximize the efficacy of the information being spread. <laughs> I don't know. The last part of that is correct. The first part, I want to correct what you said. You said the government lets things go out. The government doesn't do that. It's not the government. It's people within the government with their jobs, with their, their, they're responsible, they're intelligent, they know what they're doing. And, and the government as an institution is not doing it. It's people within the government who are focusing, they're very, very, uh, uh, what's the word? They're, they're responsible, very responsible people, very intelligent. They know what they're doing. They know their job. And they're going to be very careful to do their job correctly. So it's not like just from one source, they're letting it go or not mm -hmm. letting it go or letting go falsehoods. No, they're not doing that. Uh, it's individuals doing that, uh, that they know what they're doing. They, they, they're experts at that. And so people, the QAnon who believe uh, the, the, the uh, falsehoods without proof, uh, I'm sure they have a job somewhere. They've done something in their childhood, something that they know more than anyone else. Would someone come in and tell them, oh, you don't know what you're talking about? And says, yes, I do. I lived it. Well, that's, that's what's happening. And so I think it's the ethos part uh, that's welling up the, uh, the authority 
uh, for uh, QAnon. Uh, so the Q is their authority, and the anonymous uh, even becomes an authority because now that the, the ethos is translated to the people who are carrying it forward. Yes, I think there's a good a good, translating it. A good part of that is ethos, but I think another good part of it, and this is a good segue back to our article, is okay. pathos, appeal to emotion. So let me just read this real quick, and we can discuss this in context as well. Okay. Pathos, plural, pathia, is an appeal to Scroll the... Scroll it up. Scroll it up so we, our faces are in the middle. Oh, our, does the... Uh, uh, our faces are in the middle of it. Yes, Is but that... I, I'm gonna I'm gonna read it out loud. So I mean, okay, go ahead. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Pathos, plural, pathia, is an appeal to the audience's emotions. The terms sympathy, pathetic, and empathy are derived from it. It can be in the form of metaphor, simile, a passionate delivery, or even a simple claim that a matter is unjust. Pathos can be particularly powerful if used well, but most speeches do not solely rely on pathos. Pathos is most effective when the author or speaker demonstrates agreement with an underlying value of the reader or listener. In addition, the speaker may use pathos and fear to sway the audience. Pathos may also include appeals to audience imagination and hopes, done when the speaker paints a scenario of positive future results of following the course of action proposed. In some cases, downplaying the ethos can be done while emphasizing the pathos. For example, as William Jennings Bryan did in his Cross of Gold speech, quoting William Jennings Bryan, I would be presumptuous indeed to present myself against the distinguished gentleman to whom you have listened, if this were but a measuring of ability. But this is not a contest among persons. The humblest citizen in all the land, when clad in the armor of a righteous cause, is stronger than all the whole hosts of error that they can bring. I come to speak to you in defense of a cause as holy as the cause of liberty, the cause of humanity." There we go. That's pathos according to Wikipedia. So let's <laughs> unpack that. Do you want me to put it up so you can read, you can quote it? Well, I have it. I have it pulled up over oh, here. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, so I think we see a lot of pathos in the QAnon movement as well. They're, oh, absolutely. They're fired up. And a lot of people are telling them things they want to hear. And the... You know, allegations of demonic, Satan-worshipping child abusers. That will make you emotional. So if someone says, you know, mm -hmm. I want a $15 minimum wage, and it's like, I'm not going to accept any policy from a child abuser. <laughs> so, uh, because on, on first principles, or, you know, I'm, I'm emotional, and I know that you're evil, and my emotion will not let me see that the claim that you're evil is wrong. Mm -hmm. So what do you feel about pathos and the QAnon movement? Well, I think I think the key in the pathos, when you talk about emotion, and I think, and here it's interesting that they do say that the uh, pathos can undermine the ethos, and that's really true, uh, that, that uh, you have other authorities uh, like Fauci or like Gates or a scientist uh, or... You have other authorities saying something, but then the the pathos of the president can undermine uh, the other uh, authorities is very true. Also, the pathos, which we're getting to logos in a minute, 
uh, can doesn't necessarily have to be logical. It just has to be emotional, and uh, and that, that people will will uh, will follow it because of the emotion, and because the imagination helps. And also, it includes you can look at a person's position and appeal to their hopes or imagination, uh, and that's why you don't you don't need proof. Mm-hmm. You know, they they can imagine. Uh, uh, actually, also, I I don't know, but for example. Uh, like uh, uh, child trafficking, right? Mm-hmm. Or, um, you can say that. Go, oh yeah, that's horrible. That's terrible. Yeah, that does sound horrible. And a lot of the people doing that maybe don't even have children. Yeah, you know, they've never had children. They don't want children. They're never they're going to have it. But hey, I want to fight for it anyway. Uh, so it's not really about logic. Uh, not even about a personal. It's just something emotional uh, that they that they can imagine and then get behind. Yes. As a matter of fact, I, I think also Pathos has an idea of uh, this is getting outside this this argument here. But I think an, another strong element, which I've mentioned to you before, is these people uh, want to have an imagination on something that's controversial because that's the best way to get attention. Mm-hmm. And and also the attention, not only personally, but get attention for their group. And they have power now, whereas if they didn't have this QAnon movement, those people would not have power. And that gives legitimacy to their to their existence. And I think it's really unfortunate that uh, people need that. I think we need to rethink how we deal with our society, you know, because everybody is important in different ways. And we have to understand that and start supporting that so that everybody understands their importance. Uh, and so if they're unimportant, they're going to find something to make them important, like a QAnon movement. And so a lot of these people are just going wacko. Mm-hmm. That, that's my opinion. I I honestly think it's like, you know, people talk about, oh, it's like your uh, Facebook is like your crazy uncle found a society of millions of other people's crazy uncles. That's, what they, that's how they'll characterize Facebook. And that's how you, movements like QAnon can grow. Because you have a radicalized viewpoint or you get radicalized through, you know, the algorithms of Facebook and you're like, oh, man, I'm so upset with the world. Something's terribly off about the world. Let me read into this stuff. Oh, there's a global cabal of Satan worshiping, cannibalistic. Uh, I don't want to say the word on YouTube because they might take down the video, but you see it up there. And... um, then you say, okay, well, I'm angry, and that explains what's wrong with the world. There's nothing wrong with me. There's something wrong with the world. And it's validated by the fact that there's hundreds of thousands or millions of other people that believe the same thing. And so there's strength in numbers. So if we all believe this, we have a community. And I think there is something fundamentally wrong with the people that believe in QAnon. And... Instead of saying they're crazy and writing them off, the 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 approach would be: I think they may be crazy, and if they're crazy, they need help. You know, you I think it's in our society. It's oh, they're just crazy, and that's sort of like a, oh, just write them off, don't pay attention to them. But the approach would be: if someone's crazy, how do you help them? not be crazy. And I think that's so <laughs> often overlooked. 
that's where there is a lack of pathos among people that aren't QAnon. Well, uh, what I would say to that is that uh, uh, that that's a very good view. First of all, that that's probably very accurate. It's probably un, it's a good view. It's a, it's a good way to say it. But to me, in my mind, practically, uh, I wouldn't say that. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say they're crazy because crazy is a is a uh, an evaluation uh, according to a measure of crazy, not crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. And so if you call someone crazy, they believe what they, they believe in themselves. And so if you're crazy, boom, all of a sudden there's a separation between them and you. They're not going to listen to what you say, mm-hmm. you know? And so then all of a sudden there's a division. And also, I don't think they're that crazy. I think they, they uh, there's other things going on I think they're intelligent. I think they're capable. I think they uh, there are other things going on, like there's a need. Uh, there's a need in their lives uh, for attention. Uh, maybe there's a need in their life to believe in something that they haven't believed in before. Uh, maybe there's a need in their lives. Uh, I guess this is more getting more psychology than, than arguments or persuasion. But I, I think that to understand why people are doing this, is important, not not classifying them, to say, why are they doing this? Why is this so important to you? Uh, do you know of anyone who's done this? No. Uh, so maybe they, they have a need to believe in something. They've never believed in anything before. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at the people who, like who people who are arrested, uh, these people who are arrested at on January 6th, uh, a couple of hundred, and it's, and it's growing, uh, they're not they're not certifiably crazy. That's true. Uh, th- these people are regular people. And so what in our society has caused uh, uh, people in our society the need to believe in something without proof? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and so you can, you can point to Trump and say, look what Trump did. Oh, it's terrible what he did. Well, he just tapped into something that was already there. What in our society allowed him to ascend to the highest office in the land? That's the real question. That's the real question. What's going on in our society, in our country? And 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 who and it's not not who I should I should who is a collective. Yeah, <laughs> not not one person. Uh, but he tapped into something that exists. And I think that uh that heretofore it hasn't been tapped into and he did tap into it. So what's going on in our, in our, in our society that that need and probably multiple needs that has grown and grown and grown. And maybe the pandemic Mm -hmm. isolationism has, has brought it to the surface. It's always been there and it may always be there. It's just part of human nature, but it's brought it to the surface and boom, he tapped into it. Okay. And maybe this last year, it grew out of control. I think I think you're right. I think I'm I'm probably wrong. When you say these QAnon people are not crazy, I sort of think about it like if you believe crazy things, you're crazy. But that's not necessarily true. If you've been convinced of something and you're part of a huge group, the the maybe the solution lies in sort of seeing the foundations of that group dynamic, not in confronting every individual who believes that their psychiatric well-being. And I think you have a very good point there if you take a look at Nazi Germany. 
were there 50 million crazy Germans? Were they clinically insane for following Hitler? You know, the people that worked at the camps that were in the army, the people that supported the war effort, were all those people insane because Hitler believed something insane? And if they believed it too, if they believed in the idea of the Third Reich, and um, does that make them crazy? I don't think so. So I think there is something very fascinating going on when your group dynamics can allow you to believe something that is, if you were to sit down in a vacuum and you weren't to be told, oh, everyone in your society will believe this. And you said, do you believe that you should eradicate a race of people that live in your country um, in <laughs> death camps? And like, well, for what reasons? Like, oh, it doesn't matter the reason. You know, you wouldn't ask for what reason. You would say no. <laughs> the same thing about slavery. Was slavery wrong? Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, those slave owners were, were terrible. That's awful. Says, wait, wait a minute. Uh, be careful there. Is, is whoever owned slaves, were they horrible? Were they evil? Yes, they were. Okay. Well, Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. Mm -hmm. uh, our founding fathers owned slaves. Uh, George Washington owned slaves. Uh, okay. Are they evil? Well, no, but uh, well... So you got to be really careful uh, uh, equivocating and, and categorizing people. Mm -hmm. I think I think people, I think instead, instead of just naming them and categorizing them, I think we need to understand, understand the situation, understand what's going on, so that uh, we can move to a better society. Yeah. I mean, that's the one thing. People that are upset because Trump is overtly courting white supremacist groups and telling the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by and saying, he's the most racist president ever. You can say, oh, he didn't own slaves. George Washington and Thomas Jefferson did. So who's more racist? The guy that the guys that own slaves or, you know, the other guy? And that's that's a completely reasonable argument to make. And that is an argument you could make based on logos. <laughs> that's that's true. Let's go to logos. Let's go to logos. Uh, I'll read it real quick. Logos, plural, logoi, is the logical appeal or the simulation of it. That's a big one. And the term logic Ooh. is derived from it. It is normally used to describe facts and figures that support the speaker's claims or thesis. Having a logos appeal also enhances the ethos because information makes the speaker look knowledgeable and prepared to his or her audience. However, the data can be confusing and thus confuse the audience. Logos can also be misleading or inaccurate, however meaningful it may seem to the subject at hand. In some cases, inaccurate, falsified, or miscontextualized data can even be used to enact a pathos effect. Such is the case with casualty numbers, which, while not necessarily falsified, may include minor casual casualties or injuries that are equated with death in the mind of an audience and therefore can evoke the same effect as a death toll. Let's unpack logos. That's <laughs> as a statistician, you dwell in the realm of logos. You say, look at me plot your forecast on a linear line, and you should schedule your production to be this because I've used math to sort of estimate what your demand will be next year. 
and your production should equal your demand. And there's no pathos in that. There's no, you should do this because it's the right thing to do. I mean, you could actually apply pathos to that. So it's like last year you or three years ago, you had, you sold 10 widgets. Two years ago, you sold 20. Last year, you sold 30. It stands to reason that this year you'll sell 40. So you should make 40 widgets to sell because you're selling 10 more every year. That's logos, right? Yes. Now, if someone's like, well, last year we made 30 and... Uh, it worked out for us, so why don't we make 30 again? And you're saying, because you're getting 10 more demand every year. You should make 40 this year. So I don't know. Now, if you said, listen, listen to me. I have a PhD in statistics. And I can tell you that if you make 40, you're going to be so happy. When 40 customers walk through that door, buy all 40 <laughs> that you make, you're going to be able to take your wife out to dinner, buy her a new dress, maybe even buy her some jewelry because you're selling 10 extra widgets this year. And he says, well, I like the sound of that. Well, let's let's beef up our production line and make 40 this year. That's using pathos in addition to logos, right? That's right. And to justify your logos. Yeah. Well, uh, another example is in statistics. Uh, well, that, that's just forecasting. Mm -hmm. But in statistics, uh, test of hypothesis. Because uh, people have hypotheses all the time, they do a, they do an experiment, take a sample, and that sample then supports their 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 thesis or hypothesis, uh, or doesn't support it. But uh, the question is that that's a very slippery slope. That it's kind of like it should be handled only by statisticians who understand uh, the intricacies of that that approach. In other words, how is the sample taken? Mm -hmm. Was it a biased sample? Is it a sample of one? Uh, a sample of one sometimes has more power in society than a that is the measuring the whole population because because of the pathos. Uh, pathos. There's a thing. Can I look it up real quick? You can keep talking. I want to look it up. Um, it's an effect where the more people die, the less people care. It's a it's a thing. There's a name for it. I, that sounds like more psychology, where you get numb to it. But but what I'm talking about is that um, suppose you had a wrong sample. Oh, a sample of one. Uh, the uh, oh, who was uh, I forget his name. Who was the guy that uh, there was a law passed uh, about the um, who was the guy that who was the the man that died with a that said, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Oh, uh, George Floyd? There's a there's a bill, uh, a George Floyd bill that was passed uh, in Congress. And so that's a sample size of one. And he had a big effect. Now, was he the only one that died at the hands of police that was, that was uh, a person of color? Absolutely not. It's, it's been so many. But why did that have an effect okay and so the logos say well wait a minute if there's a lot of people die maybe this is a this is a pen this is some kind of an epidemic mm -hmm. uh of of uh, and so and so the logic there can be uh the logic of one can be much more powerful than the logic of many yes it's uh, called psychic numbing uh that's when the more people suffer the less we care because the story of one person suffering we can contextualize 
the story of a million people suffering, we don't know what that looks like. And that's what you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Well, like when a young person uh, sees a wrong being done or they hear of a wrong, like a QAnon thing, then they're going to be very passionate about it. But an older person who has seen a lot of things come and go will say, this is just another one, you mm -hmm. know. And so they go, no, that's, that's not that big of a deal. Because, yeah, it may be big. It may be a big deal for now and a month or a year, even a couple of years. But it's going to it's going to fade into something, something different. Uh, so that's another version of that. Uh, well, uh, one of my favorite clips and I should pull it up and I should have it on my hard drive so I could play it because I refer to this clip all the time was the Bill Gates. Do you know what I'm talking about? He's in Africa yes, and yes. he's working to eradicate malaria and stop, um, you know, beef up food supply lines and improve general public health. And he tells his daughter, you know, this is what we're working towards. I, I go to Africa and I see this girl. She's afflicted with malaria. She's 11 years old. She's walking across the street with a giant, you know, bucket or whatever to get water to bring back because her mother has malaria too. And I'm looking to, to you know, to, to uh, I see this and it breaks my heart. And it's why I do what I do. And his, his daughter says, so what, what, what do you do? And he's like, well, I'm donating half a billion dollars to, you know, put malaria nets throughout all the areas that are affected. I'm sending consultants to teach best practices to stop the spread of malaria. And we think we can reduce the disease by 80%. And his daughter says, no. And, sa and save and save. And save millions. Thousands and millions of people. And his daughter says, no. What did you do for that little girl? You saw that little girl suffering walking across the street. What did you do for her? And he was stumped. He's like, I, I didn't do anything for her. I'm trying to address the bigger problem. But when you st start the story and say someone was suffering and I'm trying to work on that problem, they say, well, that problem is that that one person's suffering. But the thing is, if Bill Gates devoted all of his energy to that one girl, he might not be able to save millions of lives. But that's the way people think. That's pathos, I think. So the logos, Bill Gates is all logos. Bill Gates is, if I Real use life. my wealth, I can affect this problem at scale. And but, save millions of people. But how do you get people to say it's a good idea? You use pathos. You say there was a little girl and she was suffering. And then people will say, well, why don't you help that little girl then? <laughs> and you say, because it's actually my job to help everyone. It's fascinating. I want to pull that clip because it is a great, it's a great illustration of pathos versus logos. Yeah, it's it, it's very revealing. So and so you're saying, oh, well, who's right, the little girl or or I mean, Gates or Gates's daughter? Well, they're both right. They're just a different different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Help the little girl. Help the little girl, but also help millions of people too. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's it's not one or the other. It's uh, it, if you help the little girl without helping millions, that's okay. If you help millions without helping a little girl, that's okay. If you help both of them, that's okay. That's even better. But if you don't do either, that's not good. <laughs> yeah. Also, I think Bill Gates, he's kind of a, a little robotic. He's in a position to take a detached, systematic view of things and apply massive amounts of capital to affect large-scale change. He may not be the best person, 
to get down on one knee and you know caress the girl's face and give her some fresh water that that, that might be someone else's job you know there's different horses for courses in this world and bill bill <laughs> gates right. bill gates doesn't strike me as the touchy feely person to person healer but his initiatives in public health have probably saved already hundreds of thousands of lives because he strikes me as the type of person that was a captain of industry that understands that strategic application of capital can affect change on a large scale. And so maybe that should be where he focuses his efforts. Yeah, and that's true for all of us. Know our strengths and know our weaknesses. And don't think <laughs> that you're strong at everything because you're not. Uh, know where you need help. We need each other. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs someone else. You, every, everybody need, We all need each other. And no one's perfect all the time, and uh, we need to understand that, and we all need each other. But the, but the logos, the other thing that, that in statistics, when you have a hypothesis and your data support the hypothesis, they say, oh, that proves it. It doesn't prove it, uh, especially if you only have a sample. So what, the, what they do is that uh, they state the cases of statistics, okay, the situation and the Here's a hypothesis and level of significance, and, and here's a sample and here's a distribution. So then they say, therefore, the inference, they're inferring that this sample supports this hypothesis. That doesn't prove it. It just supports it so you have a stronger argument. Uh, and so to a statistician, they totally understand that. So therefore, it's statistically significant, just at a, at a level of significance. That's not a proof. Mm-hmm. And so the proof is more deductive logic. And and when you have these kinds of arguments, they're inductive logic, and that escapes uh, persuasion. That That is not something that should be part of persuasion. Mm-hmm. But people use that all the time. The statistics say this. Well, the statistics are not a person. And uh, you got to be careful with those kinds of arguments. Uh, 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 that, that type of logic and persuasion, because you can use that to... Pre- That's why in a court of law, you can have some of the statistics says that the that the defendant is guilty. And then the next one says the same statistics say that the defendant is not guilty. Now, how could that be? Because it's all interpretation of the, of the data. And, it, and it's very true. And I even demonstrate that in my classes. It's like uh, people say... You know, more people died of heart disease than of coronavirus. So why are we taking all these measures to stop coronavirus? And it's like, I mean, that doesn't mean that half a million people didn't die of coronavirus when zero died in 2019, you know? And you could also say, and and I guess it works the other way, you know, coronavirus has killed more people than in World War II. And it's like... Oh, wow. Well, that means that we need to keep, does that mean that we need to keep focusing on combating coronavirus? Or does that mean we should start World War III because we already have something that's killing more people than World War II. Why don't we go out and get get some stuff for ourselves, you know? I mean, you could look at it that way if you use that as a, a benchmark. Oh, more people died of coronavirus in 2020 than in all of World War II. It's like, are you saying that we should go to war again? You could take the wrong inference from a stat. So like a stat, like what, what, is, what is that trying to prove? When someone says more people die of coronavirus, I mean of heart disease than coronavirus, and we don't shut down the country for that, 
uh, I heard a guy say that he wanted his grocery store to be open at full capacity where no one wears masks. In fact, I think that he said people aren't allowed to wear masks in his grocery store. And I think that um, his argument was dumb because I can't catch heart disease from someone at the grocery store. I mean, I'd have to go to the grocery store and buy uh, bacon and eggs and frying grease and cook it my whole life to get heart disease from the grocery store. I could get coronavirus in one trip to the grocery store if no one's wearing masks. But yeah. I guess... It's a, it's a misplaced argument. So Logos is... And, but also, what are people trying to achieve by saying coronavirus has killed more people in one year than in all of World War II? I don't think they're really trying to use that statistic to logically prove anything. They're trying to drum up pathos. You should care about this. This should be a matter of concern to you. Look at this stat. This stat should be... Because sometimes you can use stats to sort of drive home an emotional response. Not often. I think it works better to use a story than a stat. So stats are the realm of logos. Stories are the realm of pathos. But it can work the other way. Well, like this says here, the stats, the statistics, uh, the statistics can support uh, a, a person's position uh, that that position could be a story. You know, and so the, the story is much more personal mm -hmm. and statistics can give legitimacy to a story. And I think that's what that's what people do. And also legitimacy to the speaker as well. And that's why they say uh, it can also support the ethos. Uh, to give legitimacy to uh, the speaker or to a story or something. And so like uh, uh, the numbers comparing it to World War II, uh, you're right, the pathos that, that World War II was was uh, something horrible and we don't want that to happen again. And now they're saying World War II, uh, Vietnam and Korea and, uh, and Iraq. So all those put together. Okay, well... Uh, when people go out there and die, people are dying and they're equating this to a war. And so we have to fight it. So so not only is it uh, uh, ethos and uh, pathos, but they're also trying to say, uh, here's what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so and I think a lot of times people will uh, uh, make decisions more on pathos uh, in, in their normal life, more on pathos than logos. It may not be logical, but it sounds good to them, so I'm going to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. I, I see like a lot of people on the internet, this is a thing that, it went around a few years ago, where people would take corny stories, like inspirational stories, and then make them absurd. But they were like pathos-driven stories. So it would be like, I got dressed up in my finest suit and I went to this job interview. I was just out of college and this was the biggest day of my life. On the way to the job interview, I saw a dog. He was hungry and cold, and I felt so bad for him that I went to a nearby shop and got some food. I stayed there with the dog as he ate and petted him until he warmed up. He was happy for the food, but I accidentally missed my job interview. The next day, I got a call from the company saying they were sorry that I missed, but I was allowed to reschedule. So I got dressed up again, and I went into the HR person's office, and they received a call. They said, this interview is over. The CEO wants to see you. I went up to the CEO's office where he hired me on the spot. And who was the CEO? 
The CEO was that dog I met in the street the day before. Never underestimate anyone because they might be the one that's the key to your success. That's like uh, using pathos. You know, it's like, oh, wow, this act of kindness pays off because the dog was the CEO of the company. <laughs> and it's like, you could tell that story. I mean, that story has been told a million ways to, you know, I met someone in the elevator or someone cut me off and I flipped them off and said, hey, screw you, buddy. And then I go in and they're the ones at the interview. And it's like, always be nice to everyone because you never know who's going to hold the keys to your. Uh... But stories like that, they can influence people's behavior. If you told it real, if it wasn't just farcical, you know, like this guy had a flat tire and I helped him fix it. And the next day I went to my job interview and he was the president of the company and he hired me, you know, that type of thing. And people like, yeah, but if you stopped and helped everyone that had a flat tire, you're not triple A, you're just some guy. You got to live your life, (laughs) you know? Yeah. But it might like next time you're driving and you see someone on the side of the road, like, well, I might be able to pay this forward. And that is a decent, I mean, it's fascinating. Your individual behavior versus collective behavior versus the calculations you have to make to get the most out of life on your own terms are three vastly different things, you know? Yeah. Well, you mentioned stopping and helping someone fix a tire. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is true. I mean, this is beside the point in I don't know if this is true or not, but that that particular story I heard did happen to Howard Hughes. Someone helped him? Yep. And then he gave him a job or? I think he gave him a lot of money, a couple mm-hmm. million dollars or something, way back when. But uh, anyway, that's 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 a good point. It's a very good point. Good points, David, because that's, that's true. Uh, but, you know, uh, a lot of what we do is analyze this stuff. I'm sitting there thinking about what we just did today mm-hmm. uh, to wrap this up. Uh, uh, we we looked at the uh, modes of persuasion from Aristotle over what two thousand years two, ago, two thousand three hundred years ago, because uh, this his his uh, uh, rhetoric uh, uh, was written in three hundred five. He died in well, I think it was written three hundred five BC or something. But anyway, we're analyzing it, so uh-huh. we're using logos. To analyze this stuff, uh, the the ethos, pathos, and uh, logos, uh, and so, but uh, if we wanted uh, something from this argument or this this uh, discussion uh, to be remembered, uh, we would probably do this again and go back and look at each one of those, and like we've been here what an hour, mm-hmm. and look at each one of those. And instead of talk, an hour analyzing it and from all different sides and understand it, which is necessary, which is good to understand it. But then if you were going to communicate it effectively to be used and to impact someone else, the persuasion part would probably go back and use that to talk about each one of those to be persuasive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so people would look at it more. And I think uh, the best way, uh, which we've, we've heard, is appeal uh, to authority, say we know what we're talking about, whether we do or not, mm-hmm. appeal, appeal to it, uh, use the logic, logos, to say, and here's why it's important, but in it, what's important, create a story that really addresses the pathos. 
And we could tell a story on each one of those uh, to make it impactful so people can move forward. And not just with what's happening in our society or in politics or in our lives, but in everything. Mm-hmm. And I think it has to be a, a uh, school of thought uh, or a school of responsibility for our educational system to teach children not to memorize. Uh, here's another soapbox as, as we're leaving. <laughs> K through 12 equates intelligence with memorization. K through 12 does not necessarily teach students to think for themselves. Therefore, how do they learn to think for themselves? Through TV, mm-hmm. through advertising, through society, through games. And that logic uh, is, we've already seen, is appeal to authority and ethos and not necessarily logic at all, the way they do it. So I think, uh, to me, I, th- I think it's, a, it's an indictment on a K through 12 education for, for one reason or the other and a lot of different reasons that are moving in this direction that we don't teach students to understand the different levels of persuasion and how it's used on them. And they are, uh, they can be manipulated. And the question to these young people, are you being manipulated? And I think it should start in in, uh, the first, second, third grades. And I think in high school and the 11th, uh, 10th, 11th and 12th grades, and uh, they should be uh, asking questions about about the logic, about the... uh, pathos and about the ethos. I think they should they should challenge these things. I, I, and I think that's what our country's about. I find it fascinating, though. This reminds me of when we went to change our internet plan. We went to the in-person store. And everyone that needed help from the in-person Comcast store was like 80. And you stood there and you said, look at this, look at this. And there were probably... 10 people in the store, and they were all over 80. And he said, look at this. It's all young people. We're like, what are you talking about? It's like helping the customers. It's all young people. They're all in their early 20s. And I'm like, oh, I was remarking that it was all incredibly old people. So young people help old people with technology. Uh, that's sort of how it works. And you say, I think the failing is our schools don't teach children to recognize when they're being manipulated. But children aren't the population of QAnon. I see one major problem we have is that, and I've seen memes about this, is that Facebook has done to the baby baby boomer and Generation X generations what they always said video games were doing to the young generation. Facebook has radicalized these people because they don't understand that they're being persuaded. Now, you do a pretty good job not being radicalized or not being persuaded, but you're not on social media all day. You have some family members and some other people that are constantly posting, reposting. And and I think you see this, but well, you don't use Facebook that much anymore, do you? I haven't. No, I don't use Facebook. Neither do I. But I saw people from high school sort of go down a rabbit hole and then their page becomes more and more radicalized. And that, that's, you know, people my age in their 30s, but people your age in their 60s and 70s. And you can't even believe that they've been radicalized to this extent by social media. So they've fallen victim to the persuasion. So it's easy when you're old to say the problem is with the young. 
And it's easy when you're young to say the problem is with the old, but I think maybe there needs to be a generalized push to understand when you're being persuaded, especially in the context of a future that will be dominated with communication by social media, uh, because the algorithm is designed to pull your strings. And so I think that teaching people to take a step back and think, like you said, teaching children to think, not just to memorize, is a good piece of advice, not just for K through 12 students. It's a good piece of advice for people in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s, in their 70s, to realize this piece of content that I'm seeing was delivered to me for a reason. And it's designed to persuade me of it, uh, of something. And I need to be mindful of that when I watch it. Well, see, now when you say that, I totally understand what you're saying. And I, I kind of agree with you a little bit. But to broaden it, uh, to, to almost defend what I was saying, is that I said, uh, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. You're right. You're right. Uh, yeah, the 80-year-olds and actually the 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, yeah, they, they fall victim to this this type of logic. But in my mind, I'm saying, they are products of the K through 12 education. They're the ones who were taught to memorize. Mm -hmm. And we're still doing that. So the, the young people, the young people are know the technology. But, but if you hear what they're saying, they're saying, oh, here's how it should be done. Here's how it should be done. OK, so they're looking at the details of getting the, the technology done. OK. But uh, are they falling? My question is, are they falling uh, to the same type of uh, persuasion uh, that their older, that their fathers and grandfathers and mothers and grandmothers were? Uh, so I, I just question it. Mm -hmm. And I say, I, I think they are. Because if you ask them or their opinion on something, it's going to be what they heard on Facebook. Yeah, they're just parroting whatever they've heard. So they're still doing it. I mean, and there's. I think we should teach people to think. I mean, there's and, a fine, and, and fine line between, you know, joining QAnon and storming the Capitol or posting crazy stuff on your Facebook page. And it's like, oh, you've been persuaded by this fringe group. But there's also, you know, young people in their 20s, they get their first job, they save all their money, and they buy a Audi, you know, at the dealership. And it's like, you can't afford that. You've been persuaded to buy that, and it's dumb, <laughs> you know? And it's, it's, so it's like, oh, aspirationally, I've been told if I drive an Audi, I'm successful. Therefore, I'm going to spend outside of my means and buy an Audi. I don't mean to pick on Audi. It could be a Mercedes-Benz. It could be anything, a Tesla. Uh, and it's like the real consequences of following QAnon, you could end up in jail if you storm the Capitol. But... If you just sort of repost stuff and sort of get information about it and you live in that world until it collapses because it's built on a it's a house of cards. It's built on the sand, like in the Bible. The foolish man builds his house on the sand. The wise man builds his house on the rocks. I mean, QAnon's built on the sand. It's a house of cards, literally, built on the sand with the tide coming in. Um, so if you get into it and you dabble in it, you may not be that affected when it falls apart. But if you sign a three-year contract to pay $700 a month to drive a luxury car when you're making $30,000 a year, 
that's a decision that's going to haunt you for three years of your life, right? That's right. Or you, or you take a second mortgage on your house, and <laughs> and you're making thirty thousand a year, twenty five thousand a year, and uh, so that you can buy an expensive automobile. A $75,000 Tesla. And it's like, the second you drive it off the lot, it loses 20% of its value. And cost of maintenance is super high. You could have shelled out five grand and bought a Honda Civic <laughs> and it That's gets right. 50 miles to the gallon and it never breaks down. A five, 10 year old Honda Civic that's that's awesome. That'll get you, that'll get you one place or the other. That's mm -hmm. right. And very reliable, very reliable. And then some people, or or, or Toyota Corolla, or uh, yeah, just a reliable automobile. But some people will say, "You've been persuaded into practicality," yep. <laughs> and it's like, that's not living. Living is putting your Tesla in ludicrous mode and going zero to eighty on that in two point four seconds. You know, and people will say, "You're not really living. You've been persuaded into." sort of neutering your driving experience at the or sacrificing it at the altar of practicality. And in my car with the stereo blasting and going 100 miles an hour is the only time I ever feel alive. And you'll never know that feeling, you know? So, I mean, there's an argument for everything. Yeah, there is. Well, when I was young, I had a 442. And uh, when I'd come home from school, uh, I would drive... Uh, on uh, the open road, flat, southern Kansas, I-35, flat, and that I would cruise at about 120 miles an hour. And made you feel alive? I, I enjoyed it. It was fun. <laughs> it was fun. And it was funny because also I flew a plane, too. And uh, fly, I mean, driving 120 miles an hour. Well, first, the 442 are awesome. I wish I'd kept that automobile. You know, just driving, and you'd see the, you'd see the. I, I don't want to tell these stories. I guess we need to quit. <laughs> but I, I see a bridge coming, right? Mm -hmm. And that bridge is way out there. So, oh, here comes a bridge. You know, it's kind of, kind of coming like this, a bit this way, kind of coming like this. You know, and then I was like, boom! Then it's past you. And I go, that's that's. And then would you see, oh, there's a bridge way out there. You know, it's really small. And then the road is going under the under the under the bridge of a highway. And then obviously it goes like that. You go, wow, that's just like flying a plane. Because <laughs> I, I feel I feel a little single engine plane one summer. Mm -hmm. That's just right. You see a cloud, and all of a sudden, boom, it's past you. And so you can do the same thing when you go 120 miles an hour on a on on a highway. You know. So that is exciting. Mm -hmm. It is exciting. But uh, there are other exciting things that are more that are much safer, uh, that are just as satisfying. And and it is logical, as long as you. There are other satisfying things too, beyond pathos, that has logos. Yeah, that's logical. Like a family. Yeah. You know, like like secure like security and a family and and just uh, having things that are enjoyable, on a long term basis and a healthy basis. Yeah, like riding a motorcycle might be fun, but being in the ER isn't, because <laughs> you crashed your motorcycle. There's, I mean, I guess the point I'm making is that logos, pathos, and ethos, they're modes of persuasion. They're not uh, moral rights. So you can basically defend any position with ethos, logos, and pathos. 
You know what I mean? Good point. So it's true. Like we talked about QAnon, you can defend QAnon with those three modes of persuasion. You can also try to refute QAnon with those three modes of persuasion. And like you said, I think that one thing that's sort of a good rule of thumb is to understand when people are employing those and say, oh, he's using pathos to make his argument. Uh, but where do I stand on this issue? And will I be emotionally swayed? He's using logos to make his argument, but do I find his logic persuasive or do I feel like the first principles from which it comes are misleading? I mean, I think that anal analyzing arguments like that is always a good way to approach it as opposed to just sort of taking someone's word for it. I agree. So I think... I think, I think again, I think that's people... Need, children need, be, need to be taught to think. Mm -hmm. Think for themselves, analyze things, uh, get to the root problem, understand themselves, uh, what's right for you, because what's right for me is not right for someone else. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, people need uh, to uh, make their own decisions. They should have the freedom and the right to make their decisions as long as it doesn't hurt someone else. Yeah. And uh, I think that's like uh, the, the uh, our founding fathers had uh, this this experiment of letting we the people. That was an experiment because that's not how countries were run back then. Mm hmm. It was from top down. You have a leader. This leader uh, is the authority. And so they're saying, let's have an experiment where the people become the authority. Uh, let the people say what needs to be done. And so uh, the, uh, th that's a fascinating uh, approach. As long as the people understand that they can be swayed by persuasion. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the philosophers have addressed that. Uh, so we we probably we could get into philosophy. Mm -hmm. They've addressed that, that. That, whoa, when these people, they can be swayed. Uh, but then the counter argument is, well, so can leaders. They can be persuaded. Yeah. And it's easier, easier to, to sway one person, uh, uh, like power corrupts kind of thing, than swaying a whole nation. And so uh, anyway, there's... there's uh, but along as far as that whole nation was successful is freedom of speech and freedom of the press. That's essential. Mm -hmm. And uh, and separation of church and state because the religious uh, will focus on uh, the pathos more than the ethos and logos. They'll use ethos, but they use the pathos uh, to support that. I mean, that's why they have the cross as yeah. a symbol. Because that's all pathos. Mm -hmm. But also ethos, it's like the church is the ultimate ethos. It's God. It's like you could be high chairman, commander of the world. You're still under God, according to the church. So the authority right. comes from God, and that's the ultimate ethos. But right. I think we've really solved all the world's problems <laughs> in this last hour and 15 minutes. I think that this... Uh, it's we been could go on. We could. We could go on. It's been informative and educational for me. I think it's fascinating, like you said, that 2,300 years ago, Aristotle pointed out these three modes of persuasion. 
and we can still sit and talk with them 2,300 years later after going through college, you know, getting bachelor's degrees and advanced degrees, you and I can sit down and have a unique novel conversation for an hour and 15 minutes about these three modes of persuasion 2,300 years after they were proposed. I think that that's says... Relative, that's relative to exactly what's happening today. Yes. So relevant. So I think that this has been fun. I enjoyed this. Me too. We never got to the video clip, but I don't think we needed to. We had enough to talk about. And uh, is there anything you want to say before we wrap it up? Yeah. Well, I, hey, listen. Uh, keep on talking. But when you talk, listen more than you talk. And try to understand what the other person is saying. Bye. Bye. Bye.